Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, my name is uh, Matthew Ehrlich. You can call me Matt. Um, I'm a professor emeritus of journalism at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, before that, I worked in public radio at uh, local radio stations, um, hosted a talk show for a short period of time, was a reporter. And um, I've written a number of books, uh, and I think the thing we're going to talk about mostly today is a book called Dangerous Ideas on Campus, uh, which was published uh, a little over a year ago. Before we get to the campus, I got to ask about the talk show. Did you like doing that? Like, what, what was your style? Were you like a Walter Cronkite type? Would you do now? Okay. I mean, it was I th- it, it was a um, very low profile uh talk program, an afternoon show on um, our AM station affiliated with the University of Illinois here. So, you know, we we talked um, interviews with like uh, local politicians, people running for, for office and uh, folks of, affiliated with the university. Um, and every once in a while broke for uh, farm reports, you know, it was that kind of show. Uh, but I enjoyed it. it. You know, I, I, um was not and still I'm not an especially outgoing person. So to have that kind of experience and do it live uh was good for me personally, I think. And it was fun. I can do this, but then once I get to like real life and work I work a front desk job, but it's like even then it's just like, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? And it's just like conversation dies there. It's just like it doesn't go any farther. I don't go into like their personal lives or anything. Yeah. And when that's happening on live radio, that doesn't really work very well. So sometimes <laughs> you really got to work. I mean, you really do earn your money to try to pull somebody's uh, thoughts out when they don't particularly want to talk or when they're a little freaked out by being live on the radio, even for a, a, a relatively small audience. Um, so yeah, you might try it sometime if you ever get the opportunity because it, it, it is a good experience. Did you use the same voice? Like my parents work radio, so like I can tell when I listen to them, it's listening like they put on a radio voice. And that was like a big question for me when I started this thing. My dad was like, you're going to do a radio voice? I was like, no. I was like, just going to talk. If I'm doing this daily, I could not do a radio voice and remember and keep that up for like an hour without any like commercial breaks to buy some shampoo or something like that. I was like, so did you have a radio voice? Well, there was a kind of radio. Oh, my God. Um, So, I mean, I could do it. Um, You know, it was it was public radio and public radio has always, I think, made room for less uh, stereotypically commercial radio kinds of voices. And especially with podcasting, I think one of the best things about podcasting um, and Ira Glass, I think, uh, deserved a lot of the credit for that um, is just make room for people sounding the way they actually talk in real life. And, you know, when I taught radio uh, uh, to uh, students when I was a full-time journalism professor, it was more like, use your real voice, just sound like you're awake and engaged, 
And if you're recording, if you trip over something, do it over again. Don't leave in the mistakes when you have an opportunity to, to correct them. But yeah, I think we've gotten away from that kind of uh, stereotypical, we used to call it voice of God narration, um, where you are sort of sounding like you're um, the, 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 really the stereotypical documentary kind of narration. Uh, I think people have moved away from, and I think that's a good thing. I like the natural sound because I feel like you can process it better. It's much like, like there's there's too many like uh, when it sounds like it's more commercially. I mean, it sounds really good. Like a lot of people do it pretty well. But then there's also a sense of like, are you really soaking in the information? It's kind of like being a teacher. I mean, you can talk down to people or you could just talk to people like, hey, like this is what's going on. And this is and then like for me, that's how I soak up information better is when I'm being talked to on like on an even playing field. But I mean, when you're doing radio for like just even the university, did you guys focus on any issues that went on on campus? Like I'm just that's kind of leading into the book a little bit. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, this would have been late 80s, early 90s. And if you're trying to ask me what the issues were back then, it's hard for me to remember. I mean, there are certain perennial issues, and this does lead into the to the book that I wrote, because what interested me initially um, in subjects of academic freedom and um, issues on campus is that they are there are certain perennial sorts of issues. And because I, I had worked in journalism, and also had worked at higher education, um, I was interested in how the news media have historically covered certain sorts of issues. So, you know, issues of um, sexual mores on campus and sexual assault and consent on college campuses, that's always been an issue. Um, it was an issue when I was doing my little talk radio program um, for our public radio station on campus here in the early 90s, when I started doing research into it, I realized that this is an issue that's gone back to the early 20th century. It was an issue during the JFK years in the early 1960s. Um, and beyond that, issues of free speech, uh, what it's okay to say in a college classroom, um, who gets to speak on college campuses, who gets invited to speak, who should not be invited to speak, that's always been an issue. Uh, what the purposes of a college education should be, whether you go to college to earn uh, skills to get you a job, to earn a good living, versus getting the good, broad liberal arts education. That's always been an issue. What should be involved in a liberal arts education, whether it should be kind of uh, the classics, that kind of classic Western tradition, or open that up to encompass, you know, it's just like voices on the radio. One of the things that's been really nice about podcasting and is that it's made room for non-white, old, male kinds of voice of God authority figures. So now we hear all sorts of different kinds of voices on the radio. And um, that's also a, a, an issue with curriculum on college campuses um, and broadening that to non-Western um, kinds of things. So all of that comes together and all of that sparked my interest and I started writing about it. When we talk about like the sexual assault stuff that happens on college campuses, it's, you hear a little bit about it today, um, at least from what I can see through. I don't know if it's algorithm. Maybe my algorithm just doesn't show me results like that. 
but I hear some stories about it, whether I'm talking to someone and it's an example that gets brought up or it's a news headline, but there's not a lot of reporting on it. And I don't know if that's an issue with the journalists, if that's an issue with just the story getting out there. I mean, the my issue with like ac academia or not academia, but certain universities in a sense is like even with the – I talked talk to you off air about the CIA on campus and the things we learned from the church committee. It's relationships, and I don't know whatever it respects the institution of education, whatever their credibility or their reputation – to make sure a story like this doesn't break or it doesn't become a scandal. I mean, that's just people, though. There's always someone willing to try and respect their reputation by doing anything to hide a scandal. I mean, we can see that through so much of history, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's whatever. So, I mean, is that the issue? Is it, is it reporting? Is it certain relationships that could be messed up so it's power in the institutions that are keeping the story silent? Uh, it's probably a little bit of all of that. I think if you're affiliated with a college campus, and and by the way, I'm still teaching part-time. Um, so the, the reason I, I mention that is that every time uh, you get hired at a university, uh, certainly at my, my own university, and I'm pretty sure it's the case at others, you have to do uh, mandatory training. And part of the mandatory training is um, how you report uh, cases of sexual misuse, uh, sexual abuse, um, or sexual assault, because there are very specified rules that you have to follow. So people in college communities and who teach and work at a university are very acutely aware of this beyond any sort of news coverage that happens or doesn't happen. But why people might not hear about it outside a college community I mean, there are questions of confidentiality when uh, you know complaints are filed. Um, often the names are are kept confidential for good reason, uh, which makes it harder to break into the headlines. Um, there sometimes uh, you know people are still squeamish about sex. Uh, one thing that uh, I found out in doing my historical research is, that, um, you know, there's always been squeamishness about talking about sex, frankly, um, in any kind of setting, but even in a college setting, and how much is appropriate to say and, and not say and to report and not report. So I think that also may play into it. Um, and yeah, there are power differences and concerns about things getting squelched uh, concerns about not just sexual assault, but sexual harassment and that potentially being covered up. So it, it is a real sort of problem. And I think all the kinds of things that you mentioned go into it. If I just make a small assumption, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when it comes to like an institution, especially one like back in the day, uh, when it comes to, I guess, certain, I wouldn't say reputation, but certain standards which would be no showing anything, even holding hands and doing any of those types of acts. I mean, that does that not create repression to where there could be an outburst of some incidences of sexual assault and things of that sort? I mean, like I said, it's an assumption. It might not be right, but I just think of it from like back in the day, there were so many kids that couldn't hold hands in the hallways. You couldn't hug. You couldn't do any of that stuff. And then wow, well, when I go back to school and I look in the hallways, it's a lot more than that. And I'm like, well, it comes from a point where, I mean, they were really extreme on one end where you couldn't even 
I mean, it's like Hollywood and Hollywood, they couldn't show sex on screen. And then you had to have a foot on the floor or you had to cut to a fireplace or cut to a windowsill to show that this is. And now, now we're way past that. We're 10 times past that. I'm pretty sure you can watch a PG-13 movie and see some action on it. But is it a repression aspect? Is it a reputational standards thing? Um, yeah, it, it, this actually is what I was writing about. What were the sexual mores in the early 60s? Um, partly compared with those today. And in the early 1960s, in the age of JFK, um, it was a lot harder to talk about this openly and uh, a lot harder to have the sorts of public displays of affection you were just referring to uh, compared with the, uh, our popular culture today and compared with other sectors of society today. It still can be hard to talk about it, even today, as we were just discussing. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is young people have always been having sex, okay, forever and ever. Uh, young people have always been hooking up. Um, hookup culture didn't just suddenly emerge in the last <laughs> There's a, years. there's a community in Florida called the villages that's filled with nothing but old swingers. So they don't stop when they're young. <laughs> yeah. And people were getting uh, pregnant uh, for um, sex outside of marriage um, and dealing with the consequences of that. That's just been going on for decades. It's always been an issue. It always will be an issue. What was significantly different um, in the early 1960s was that um, you just weren't really supposed to talk about it. It was understood uh, among adults. Uh, it was an unspoken sort of assumption that this was going on, but you didn't talk about it. And so what I found out in, in starting to do my historical research was that on my own college campus, University of Illinois, back in 1960, uh, there was a, a biology professor, a guy named Leo Cook, and he had the exact concerns that you just mentioned, that not to talk about this openly, to repress it, was just going to cause more problems. Um, when you repress uh, talking openly and frankly in a non-sensational, non-lewd sort of manner about sex, when you talk about it, as a biological concern, as a biological function that everybody has, uh, when you talk about it uh, in terms of social mores, and where else are you going to talk about social mores if you're not going to talk about it on a college campus? That's exactly the kind of place you should be talking about this. When you repress this, then bad stuff is going to happen. It's only going to lead to more people being messed up about their sexuality. Uh, it's only going to lead to more potential cases of uh, sexual assault and so forth. So let's talk about it. And he actually wrote a letter to the campus newspaper. Um, and the last line of it was something like, um, with a mutually satisfactory sexual experience, uh, young people uh, will no longer have to result to frustrating petting. That was what uh, everything but sexual intercourse was referred to uh, back then, so-called heavy petting. And, you know, petting above the waist, petting below the waist. There were all this, the, a whole set of unwritten rules that everybody knew about. And 
Leo Cook said in his letter to the newspaper, let's just get past this and let's say it's okay for young people uh, taking the proper precautions in terms of birth control and so forth and consent and having the necessary level of maturity and not rushing into sex if they're not really ready for it. But if they are ready for it, it should be perfectly okay for them to do that. So the uh, student newspaper, the Daily Illini student newspaper, published this letter, and it triggered this massive uproar that immediately led to him getting relieved of his teaching duties in the middle of the semester and getting fired because he had the audacity to say this out loud. And, um, you know, it, it, it really spoke to the repressive climate at that time. And students, for their part, even students who did not agree with Leo Cook's perspectives on sex, still said, look, this guy has a right to speak his mind, and it is a college campus, and we're old enough to uh, make judgments about what our sexual behavior should be or not be. So, yeah, we should be able to talk about it. And that's what I was writing about really in this book that we we mentioned at the outset was how this started to be a sign of the change, the growing so-called sexual revolution that accelerated as the 60s continued so that by the end of the 1960s, you know, something like Leo Cook's letter would have seemed completely innocuous as opposed to at the start of the decade when it seemed like he was violating um, a really serious social taboo. How was the university's reaction to him when it was? Do you think it boils down more to a Christian ideology perspective of like purity? Like there's a lot of that. Or do you think it boils down to like they just didn't want it on the campus, like sex on campus? Um, Both. Okay. Because Hoover was like, I mean, if you know about Hoover, Hoover was, I mean, looking for communists. There was this big communist fear out there. And kind of like looking through your book, I started to kind of realize this seems a lot like labeling something communist a little bit. Like you kind of have this purist mindset, which is if it doesn't fit exactly how you want it to be or how pure you think you want things to be, then it's bad. And it gets demonized much like communism was back then. And I'm assuming it was the same thing. Like if you didn't agree with the Christian norms, like there's things you couldn't bring up at a dinner table, religion politics all this type of stuff it's the same thing it's like we don't it's not that you know we know we don't do it it's just the fact of like you're not going to here this is not what's going to happen and then now you have a bunch of kids that don't know what to do with themselves they don't know the proper guidance because you're the person with experience that's supposed to give it to them and they don't know yeah it was both um christian mores and um fears of communism together um leo cook had already pushed a lot of people's buttons in fact, he was already on a terminal contract, uh, meaning that he only had one more year at the University of Illinois before he had to leave, um, even before he got fired uh, a year early. Um, and part of the reason for that was he had been writing other letters to the editor uh, where he was um, blasting Christian morality. And in his letter uh, saying that um, premarital sex among students should be condoned, he was condemning also uh, Victorian uh, Christian mores that he said were very destructive. So that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And um, fears of communism, even though we were a few years beyond um, the McCarthy era, McCarthy had died in the late 50s, um, but still um, the Cold War, Cold War was at its height and fears of communism were still very much out there. 
Um, and anything that was deemed to be kind of outside the accepted norms. Um, and it wasn't just um, sexual freedom, it was also civil rights. Um, uh, Hoover, if I remember correctly, you know, he targeted Martin Luther King and so forth. Helen Telpro, that's his baby. Yeah, and other civil rights leaders because of partly because of purported fears of communism and the fears that the civil rights movement was controlled by communists. And he sent letters to the guys, the Black Panther leaders' wives, saying that your husband is sleeping with teenage kids. And that's so dirty. That is the worst thing I can. I mean, I look from a government standpoint, I don't see how you can even who's thinking of this type of stuff. But just from like a that's a low shot. That is so low. And that's like, I mean, I've studied the Fred Hampton assassination and that's a whole other. But yeah, there's a lot of that purist mentality where you st I think it's even with Nixon, you see the best example of like these agencies. These agencies were the ones that were really controlling the tides of the 60s and 70s. I mean, Hoover had been a director for so long, but everything he stood for was ex depicted exactly what was going on what was being forced onto people, whether it was communism, whether it was repression, suppression, no homosexuality, none of that type of stuff. Yeah, if I remember correctly, um, I, I don't know if it was actually Hoover and the FBI. It might have been some other government agency, but they targeted King as well for that's, that's um, extramarital affairs. They and... faked a suicide note for him. That's the crazy thing. Where it's like, dude, what are we talking about? No, like I, that's where I stand against the government. It's like you start learning that dark stuff. You kind of go, okay, hang on a second. Are we just being like puppets in a way? I'm not saying anything conspiratorial. I'm just saying it's really dark if you're being able to, you know, take somebody away from something like that. But do you think that pushed into like the whole summer of love type deal? A lot of that kind of repression, a lot of that kind of build up, and then kind of this. I know there's plenty of events like during the 70s and other stuff that was going on that pushed this era of love and progress and peace but there's a lot of things when it comes to like being held up for so long everything before the 60s and earlier and earlier there was just a large push and then a kind of a blowout which they literally called a summer of love yeah that was uh, 1967 and um what started happening a few years before that was um a liberalization of sexual mores um the civil rights movement um the peace movement of the early 1960s, which then um, morphed into the anti-war movement when the, the Vietnam War was escalated starting around 1965 or so. And of course, all of these sorts of um, social changes um, converged on college campuses. So it's, it's really um, extraordinary what happened in just 10 years. Sometimes you can exaggerate how much change actually um, happened in a compressed time period. But even if you just look at pictures of how students looked in 1960, compared with the way students looked in 1969 and 1970, I mean, the hair got exponentially longer, right? And the dress loosened up considerably. And that was a product of all the social change that was happening. And it wasn't all um politics it was also you know pop pop culture and the, the coming of the beatles and their impact on hairstyles and um the, the other changes in pop culture and music 
you mentioned movies, the, the, the collapse of the production code, which happened in the late 1960s with Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate and movies like that. Um, and so all of it did come together and all of that change happening at once um, really uh, sparked a backlash, which is also what I was writing about, because it wasn't just the government. It wasn't just uh, people like J. Edgar Hoover. It was also um, even professors on college campuses. This other guy that I wrote about, Revelo Oliver, who was a uh, co-founder of the John Birch Society, was very sympathetic White to- White supremacy right there. He said John Birch. Yeah, and so kind of, if, if, if anything, going beyond the FBI, um, I'm probably, I, I, I haven't researched J. Edgar Hoover, but I, my guess is uh, from what I know about him and his feelings about civil rights and people like Martin Luther King, he, um, I don't think, was unsympathetic to white su supremacy, um, but I think the FBI in some cases may have tracked uh, far-right groups the way they did other groups. I, mean, I, I don't know that for sure. He's a little less lenient on the the, the far-right. He was way more uh, going against leftists. Like, I mean, they created a fake magazine to throw on college campuses called the Radical Observer. And it was like everything protesting the protests against the Vietnam War. Like, it's okay to go to war. It'll be all right. And then, like, I mean, they invaded the Gay Blades, which was a magazine um, for homosexual gay people and there's a lot of like there's just it's so dirty the mindset of one man that gets in and that's where would be the hard right ideology which i wouldn't even really call it hard right it's way more pure christian mentality of like none of this you know sex within marriage and these types of things as well too but if you look up hoover and clyde tolson i don't know if you've ever heard about that you realize he's a bit of a hypocrite um, yeah yeah <laughs> uh but when 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 coke or uh when he got fired did he do anything like did he spark out did he have some type of i mean i would think that you would start a protest a movement anything of that sort to be able to understand like hey like we gotta be able to talk about these things freely and openly well part of the reason he got fired was he was an untenured biology professor um tenure matters on college campuses and part of the reason it's important is it does let the people who have that protection actually speak their minds without fear of retaliation. That doesn't mean that no retaliation might happen. Certainly today, when tenured professors say something controversial, they're going to get a social media backlash at least and possibly face um, consequences from their institutions. But Leo Cook did not have that protection. So there was not all that much he could do, but certainly he did speak out against his firing. And what was interesting is, uh, you know, I mentioned that some students on campus at that time who didn't even agree with them, they protested. They staged a big mass demonstration in front of the administration building on, on the University of Illinois campus. And it was not exactly like the demonstrations that would take place a few years later during the Vietnam era. I mean, there weren't, you know, there weren't any rocks thrown, there wasn't tear gas fired or any of that kind of stuff, which did happen later in the decade. Um, it was almost a party atmosphere. But still, the issues that these students were raising was like, you know, it's not about free love, it's about free speech. We should be able, as students, to talk about this and to repress it 
to try to squelch this kind of speech uh, by getting rid of people like Leo Cook is just wrong. So even though there was only a little bit of um, what Leo Cook could do in his own defense, um, other people did take up his cause. They couldn't save his job, uh, but he did spark something. He did kind of set a few um, metaphorical fires that then started to spread. Now, when it comes to journalists picking up his story or anybody getting news of his story, I mean, was there is that some of the fire, the metaphorical fire that began to spread? I would feel like a, any journalist that would see that would understand the dangers of limiting speech on either can, even campuses or just students in general, but also the academic professionals as well, too. You shouldn't just I mean, I'm pretty sure it's like that today still, but having tenure to be able to say what you want and fear that you might lose your job. I mean, social media backlash is one thing, but if you still have a job and you're able to talk about the things that you feel like you should be able to express yourself, I man, that's the point of education is learning. I've learned that through almost 1500 episodes that not every single person believes the same thing. And surprisingly, it keeps a balanced approach when you try and understand everybody's perspective on things. But that academic freedom, that academic expression doesn't only come in with business or people funding research projects. But it's just – it's been a long relationship that needs to get disconnected a little bit. I mean there should be academic integrity, and with that academic integrity also comes academic freedom. Yeah, and that's uh, kind of the principle of academic freedom. It, it, it doesn't just belong to tenure professors. It belongs to other faculty members as well. It relies on peer review, um, uh, faculty judging other faculty in terms of the quality of their work. Um, there are limitations on academic freedom that kind of are bound up with what you just said, integrity, uh, which we can go into a little bit more. But just to go back to your first qu uh, question about journalists, um, there was a split press reaction to Leo Cook. Some newspapers, especially those with the conservative editorial bent, uh, said, yeah, he should have been fired uh, because, because his academic freedom doesn't extend to him just saying whatever the hell he wants to. Um, that's, in fact, you know, in, in, this is in Illinois. Uh, we're in Champaign-Urbana, so we're like a, a couple of hours drive south of Chicago. Uh, but there were four newspapers, four mainstream newspapers in Chicago at that time, and all four of them editorialized that Leo Cook should have been fired. Um, but um, other newspapers and other journalists said, this is completely ridiculous for the reasons that you said. Um, he should have a right to speak out, and that is what academic freedom is all about, having the um, power of the academic freedom phrase for what Leo Cook did, writing a letter to the editor, um, is extramural expression. And it's called extramural because it's kind of outside regular teaching and research responsibilities. But the fact that you're a college professor doesn't mean that you automatically um, give up your citizenship rights, your First Amendment rights. And so extramural expression extends to what a professor says in something like a letter to the editor or nowadays to a tweet or a social media post. So yeah, the, there, there was a split reaction, but a lot of journalists and a lot of newspapers and, and, and other media outlets at that time did take up Leo Cook's cause. And interestingly enough, uh, so did the Daily Illini, the student newspaper. Um, they said, you know, th th this, this just goes too far. He, 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 may seem like kind of a kook, uh, like kind of a crank, uh, but still, you know, this letter that we published, the student newspaper published, 
um, certainly should not have gotten him fired. And the newspaper said so publicly. When it comes to Oliver's re- or punishment or reaction, I mean, was he, was he spouting out like the same kind of Christian ideology type mentality that the the university had? Was that why he was able to stay? I mean, was he even was he giving his ideas like was he spouting anything that would come off as kind of white supremacy to any students? I feel like that would be a bigger danger if you're a especially in. I mean, that's not really the throes of the civil rights type thing, but it's around the time of the civil rights movements. Um, So I I would think I mean, I think Lyndon Johnson did a good amount for civil rights, even though it was kind of Kennedy's idea. But obviously, Kennedy didn't live to be able to fulfill everything that he promised. But there is a civil rights thing going on. So I would think that people are more educated on the aspect of, you know, open-minded to having other people of different ethnicities on their college campus. I would think that those types of ideologies would slowly start to blow down when it comes to white supremacy notions. Yeah. A little bit of background on Revelo Oliver first. Uh, one thing is, was his name, which was odd. It was a palindrome. You know, Oliver was his last name. Revelo was Oliver Backward. Of course, that was his given name. He didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, But even his name was a little strange. And he was a um, full professor, a tenured full professor of the classics. Um, So part of the reason he did not face the same consequences as Leo Cook was that he actually did have tenure, whereas Leo Cook did not. Um, But what Oliver got into trouble with, this would have been in 1964, was in the uh, context of John F. Kennedy and Kennedy being assassinated. So Oliver, prior to Kennedy's assassination, already had established a reputation as a far-right, white nationalist, white supremacist kind of guy, and had stirred up controversy about uh, views that he had published in various John Birch Society publications and elsewhere. Um, complaining about civil rights and saying nasty things about people of color and saying nasty things about uh, Jews. He was also very strongly anti-Semitic. And some of this was veiled early on, and then it just progressively got more and more overt, more and more extreme as time went by. But that wasn't what got him into trouble at the University of Illinois. What did get him into trouble and what stirred up so much controversy was that He wrote an article about the John F. Kennedy assassination um, called Marksmanship in Dallas, M-A-R-X-M-A-N-S-H-I-P, which is a really tasteless title because, of course, this happened just after John F. Kennedy had been killed by a a rifle shot in Dallas. And um, the Marks, M-A-R-X, of course, was uh, suggesting that Kennedy had been assassinated uh, because of uh, communism and specifically because of the Soviet Union preparing for a takeover of the United States. It also, this article that uh, Revelo Oliver wrote in uh, the John Birch Society uh, magazine um, also uh, suggested that, um, you know, this was um, intended to be a Soviet takeover, lay the groundwork for a Soviet takeover but place the blame on right-wing elements in the United States of America, on people like Revelo Oliver himself. So he was in defensive mode. He was saying like, they were really gonna pin it on people like me, great Americans, patriots. Um, But in fact, 
this was all arranged. Lee Harvey Oswald, who, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald really was in the Soviet Union. Um, but Oliver said was, well, they flew him there and they trained him in Minsk to be an assassin and then flew him back, planted him in the United States. And there was this whole elaborate cover up. And John F. Kennedy, by the way, that people were expressing so much grief over his murder, which happened only weeks prior to him saying all this. John F. Kennedy himself was a communist, and he was in league with Nikita Khrushchev, and he was in league with Castro. And so, you know, this was all published, and people were like, what are you talking about? This is horrible. This man was murdered just weeks uh, ago, and you're saying all this garbage about him, and you're saying all this outlandish stuff. And people said, this guy's got to go. He's, he needs to be fired by people. I'm saying people off the college campus. But the University of Illinois, partly because they had learned their lesson from Leo Cook, and there had been so much blowback four years previously to Leo Cook getting fired, uh, said, you know, he has the right to extramural expression. He has the right to speak his mind. And we may not agree with what he says, but uh, he's going to keep his job. And he did have the protection of tenure. But it was really because of his article, what he said about John F. Kennedy, more than his white supremacy, that stirred up the real controversy at that time. I wonder if I wonder if he would have ever gotten fired for that article. I mean, that's a the the Kennedy conspiracy thing. That's been something I've been over 64,000 things I've documented on. And I could tell you what we know now compared to what we know in 63. And I've talked to Bob Blakey of the HSCA. who was the second investigation that the history just doesn't talk about. And many members of the ARRB to say like, I mean, back then, a lot of people believed conspiracies. So I wonder if that's just one of those articles or one of those things like it's, it's a subject that you can kind of slide through a little bit by your teeth but even for an academic that's kind of pushing it a little bit i don't know that's a that's a tough subject i mean even if it was weeks after um that he writes that article about that or was it weeks before or weeks after it was it was, it was a, actually it was a two-part article the first installment of it, it was published in february 1964 so it would have been what two months three after. months after the assassination yeah and it's one of those where if that gets him in a little bit of trouble, I mean, it shows you what Kennedy was doing at the time as well, too. I mean, I've looked into Kennedy's life, not just his death. And I mean, he went to many, many college uh, speeches and graduations that was going on there. He was very active as a president um, in the short time that he was. And I, I think that gave hope. I mean, the fact that a president cares about, you know, education, and that was one of the first things he talked about on the debates. And if you really want to point out, like, clear ideologies of like Christian or hard right or left. Just watch the debates with Nixon. Watch how the country is going for the same mentality Nixon is just spitballing and tossing out ideas. And you just hear this young guy come on screen and just start talking about how we used to be great. You know, space is the new science. We need to get to space. And he's just talking about education. He's talking about civil rights. And even for me, I'm like, it sounds normal as hell because, hey, it's today. But Back then it wasn't. I mean, the room got silent and everything he seemed like, if you really kind of view it from a right establishment or an establishment that's been going in a certain ideology for a very long time, that's a danger. That's not 
anything assassination related. That's just a danger to like he can't be president. And then uh, it's get it gets, it's there's a whole background to that with like Alan Dulles of the CIA and J Edgar Hoover. Two people Kennedy hated and they hated Kennedy um, mostly for things like Operation Northwoods, which if you know what that is, they're just crazy ideas going on in the intelligence agencies where it's like. What are you guys? Are you guys looking for you know ways of like gathering intelligence? Or are you worried about making people think the way that you think? And it all kind of ties in with like college campuses. It ties in with so much stuff, which makes the '60s even more complicated because it's like what do we don't we don't we only know what we know. We know we don't know what we don't know, and that's documentation. That's other operations that were going on, whether it was domestic or foreign. I mean, our involvement in Latin America. I mean, there's a lot of stuff and. I'm not a left. I'm not left. I'm not right. I'm kind of like, I wouldn't say dead center, but I believe deep state because it keeps me out of the left, right finger pointing and all that. Uh, but it makes me wonder. It's like, I mean, there's a real reason people were visibly upset. It's not because they have some leftist views. It's just because they realize that there's abuses of power going on. I mean, your rights as an American, you're entitled to, to whoever you are. Uh, and that's freedom of speech. That's all the things that are listed in the Constitution. But at the same time, it's like, do you have that? We have the idea of it. You know, I'm not trying to make a modern representation, but you can see that all in the 60s and 70s. Nobody questioned their government before a lot of – I mean we had three assassinations in one like eight years, like seven-year span. So damn right the public wants an answer at the same time, but also people are just feeling like I don't really have the voice I was promised. You know, People probably were experiencing in other places. Uh, college campuses and things of that sort long before all the assassination stuff starts happening. But it's really when a time when people started questioning their government and you saw a complete reaction and a burst out from it. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, one is just um, the uh, fact that- it, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're, you're good. Uh, the Revelo Oliver uh, talking, basically sharing his own personal idiosyncratic uh, conspiracy theory about uh, the Kennedy assassination. It's sort of in a way like um, Leo Cook talking about sex. Nowadays, everybody's got a theory, right? There are so many different theories about what actually happened with the JFK assassination. Um, so for him to write a similar, if a college professor wrote a similar article today, it would still stir controversy, but maybe not so much controversy because um, I think public opinion polls have shown that a majority of people believe there was some sort of conspiracy behind the Kennedy assassination. They might have very different takes on what exactly the conspiracy involved, but just to say there was a conspiracy behind it is not all that controversial. So in that sense, what uh, Revelo Oliver wrote would not really raise the kind of hackles today that it did uh, back in 1964. But part of the reason it did raise the hackles back then was not so much that he was sharing a conspiracy theory. It was that he was saying really bad things about John F. Kennedy. And what you were just saying uh, is true. Uh, Kennedy was a figure of hope, especially to college students. Um, he was so much younger than the previous um, presidents had been, and he used that to his advantage with the new frontier kind of language. And in his inaugural address, uh, passed the torch to a new generation. And what I have read uh, in personal memoirs and accounts from students 
uh, college students of that era was, they really responded to that. Uh, JFK actually campaigned at the University of Illinois in 1960. And you can find that speech on YouTube if you just uh, Google or, you know, in the search window at, at YouTube, uh, Kennedy 1960 University of Illinois, you can hear him give his speech and he's talking about Africa. Why with all these emerging, uh, uh, you know, new countries that had this long um, history of colonialism and now have independence, why isn't the United States doing more to speak to the needs of Africa? And it's like you just said, you know, people hadn't heard that before. Uh, people were inspired to join the Peace Corps, a lot of college-age kids at that time, uh, because they were inspired by Kennedy's words. Um, so that kind of, uh, his youth, the fact that he died so violently when we didn't have that whole history of assassinations that we would have a few years later, um, that added to the shock and that added to the backlash against Revelo Oliver. But the last thing I'll say in reaction to what you just said was that there was a backlash to Kennedy among people like Revelo Oliver because he did seem like a threat to uh, the way things had been, to the kind of classical white male Western tradition that Revelo Oliver taught and studied and revered. Um, all this talk about Africa and all this talk about civil rights and all this talk about um, uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, Kennedy signed the Test Ban Treaty, seemed to be trying to uh, reduce tensions with Russia, uh, which to someone like Revelo Oliver seemed like he was, only, you, know, you know, seemed um, horrible. Uh, and to the John Birch Society, you know, Russia is our enemy and communism is the enemy. Anti-Christianity is the enemy. So all of that seemed to kind of stick to John F. Kennedy. So when Kennedy actually was assassinated, people like Revlo Oliver were like, oh, I don't care. I think it's a good thing he was assassinated. He actually wrote in his article, uh, John F. Kennedy's name will in time be cherished with distaste among Americans. Um, so, yeah, I think you hit on a lot of good points. Kennedy, my favorite Kennedy quote is, I rather my kids be red than dead. And that was when he was doing the nuclear test ban thing. Uh, it was an atmospheric ban, uh, so they could still test him underground. But he had the idea of like understanding that like if we just nuke each other, then what world are our kids going to live in? So I'd rather be a communist. I'd rather be my kids be red than dead, um, which is a very powerful thing to say, especially back then, because everything always was hard on Russia, hard on communism. And then this, he had a different approach of like maybe we should work out a deal. But have you ever heard of the name Tomoboya? No. So Tom Oboya was a, uh, a, a kid in Africa. He wrote a letter to John F. Kennedy because we were in Africa for a brief amount of time. We gave him about three months, I think three or four months to kind of get all their stuff together. And if they don't become an independent country, then we were going to come over there and we were going to do that. We were going to take over basically just like same thing we did in Indonesia. Um, but so this kid writes a letter to John F. Kennedy and says, you want us to become an independent country, but we have nobody in our country that's educated. So John F. Kennedy, out of his own personal cash, decided to go $10,000 to get each one of like one male or whoever from that country, a bunch of them, I think it was like a 50 or 100 of them, have them come over here, go to these college institutions, become educated, and then go right back. And one of those, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is from Robert Kennedy, is the, the, that, that would be his nephew, uh, talked about one of those was Obama's father. 
So that's interesting to me. And that's like in a documentary and everything about it. But I go, nobody was doing that. Nobody did what Kennedy did when it came to meeting with all of these foreign ambassadors from other countries personally and having discussions with them once a month in his office because he felt like he needed to remain these connections. You need to understand what they're going through and what's going on in another country. That was not the fate of the – that was not every other president. Every other president – I mean honestly, and I'll ask your opinion on this. Do you think if Nixon would have won, do you think Nixon would have had the bad reaction in history that he had? Because I feel like if Nixon's mentality – I know later we obviously the history does, does not like Nixon for he tried to pressure way too much. But I feel like before Kennedy, that would have been fine and we wouldn't have noticed that. But it was kind of that brief time with Kennedy that people noticed a different way. You know what I mean? Like, I hate to say it like that, but it, it through my research into the 60s and 70s and specifically a lot about Kennedy, Johnson, and then even talking to Jeff Shepard about Watergate and, you know, Nixon – I go, his mentality would have been perfect for the 60s because the country had not shifted in a different direction yet. But after Kennedy, even that brief amount of time, there was a shift that was beginning and everyone else was starting to ride that wave of shifting into this new type of thinking and this new equal rights type thing. That was not the fate of the country before Kennedy. But then Nixon comes in after Johnson, you know, leaves his uh, administration, you know, his time serving. And, uh, he just was trying to pick up on exactly what he was saying in those debates, and it was not going to work when he was debating Kennedy, basically doing, trying to do the exact same thing. He thought the president held all the power. I just – I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. It's a weird question, but my own interest. Yeah, I, it's a really interesting question that I don't think I've thought of before is if Nixon had won in 1960, what would have been different? And uh, yeah, I honestly don't know. I I, I have to think that – the civil rights movement, which was already underway, I mean, it, it, it had been underway for several years with uh, uh, the bus boycott and the um, sit-in protests in the South actually began um, in early 1960 before the 1960 election. So I think the, some of these social changes certainly would have still happened. Whether Nixon would have facilitated them had he been elected in 1960, uh, would he have resisted these changes? Um, because, you know, again, I'm just kind of going by my memory of the Nixon presidency when he actually did become president. I mean, he he wasn't hardcore right wing on every single issue. Uh, he um, uh, was... <sighs> If I'm wrong, I, I apologize to the people who may be hearing this or seeing this, but my impression was he he went along with environmental issues and other kinds of things while he was president. So um, how things might have been different is is really interesting question. Um, I will say a couple of things. One is, you know, we were talking about the Caspian Treaty and uh, Kennedy's role in that and all that. And one thing that I have come to believe in doing historical research is we do tend to think that things used to be much better and that in the Kennedy years, uh, things were much more idealistic and much more hopeful and optimistic than they are certainly today. And even um, as they were when Nixon actually did become president in the, uh, at the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s. And I'm sure to an extent it was true that the Kennedy years were very idealistic. And as I mentioned, he did seem to really give hope to a lot of people. 
Uh, Kennedy did have his peccadilloes uh, that we didn't know about at the time he was assassinated and did find out about later, like his sexual behavior and so forth, and his own involvements with the uh, intelligence establishment. It's part of the reason that if people said nasty things about JFK today, it would be less controversial today than it was back in 1963, because we now know more about him that maybe isn't quite so shiny nice uh, compared with his reputation back then. But um, the other thing about the early 60s was it was also a really apprehensive time in a lot of ways because of things like atmospheric nuclear testing and because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Kennedy was um, quite outspoken against the Soviet Union and uh, seemed to embrace that reputation as being a cold warrior early in his presidency. And I think during the debates, and again, I may be wrong, but I think during the debates, one of the points of contention was that Kennedy was saying, the Eisenhower-Nixon administration hasn't done enough to close this missile gap. The Russians have too many more nuclear weapons than the United States does, and that's bad. The United States should have more of these nuclear missiles. So um, yeah, college students at that time had their own worries and their own fears and their own apprehensions about suddenly being blown up out of nowhere. Um, so it wasn't necessarily all good back in the early 1960s. And when Kennedy, toward the end of his presidency, of course, he didn't, nobody knew it was toward the end of his presidency when he embraced the text, uh, the test ban treaty. And when he really started embracing civil rights in part because he was forced to do so, uh, due to the course of events, um, in, in, in partly because of what was happening at the University of Alabama and the University of Mississippi um, on college campuses and previously all white uh, campuses being desegregated. Um, when he started moving in a, in a more overtly liberal direction and all these issues, uh, that in turn made him even more vilified by the right. So it is a really People, when they study the 60s, I think, and when they talk about the 60s, the 1960s, a lot of times they concentrate on the second half of the decade, the Vietnam era and the anti-war era and the summer of love era, the sexual revolution era, and the the, the birth of second wave feminism and the um, uh, birth of gay rights, The, the not the birth of it, but the um, growth of gay rights and these kinds of things. They tend to focus on the latter years of the 1960s, but the seeds for all of that were happening before then in the first half of the decade, the JFK years, which uh, had a whole lot of change of uh, that was really interesting and a whole lot of tensions and optimism and fear combined going on that I just think makes those years fascinating. It's yeah, I'm in the same boat with you. That's why I'm very interested in not only Kennedy's assassination, but also just the times of the 60s and Kennedy's also life as well, too. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like Vietnam. Obviously, you look at that's probably the most outspoken example of 
around the 60s and 70s when it comes into the a real change or a lot of people being activists. That's kind of like what I think of as the activist movement, just because there's a, a big outcry of people going, what the hell are we like? We have artists and musicians that are finally talking about it and writing it into their songs and sparking people, you know, painting things on walls and trying to understand like, hey, why the hell are we over there? Even the soldiers over there were questioning what's going on as well, too. When it comes to the he, I think Kennedy ran on a platform of a cold warrior. And then once he got elected, he kind of started switching his positions on things. I mean, there was just a lot of things that, you know, he said and he I mean, guess let to see what was going to happen because he got killed. But, you know, I think Johnson carried out some of those principles of Kennedy, too, especially. I mean, he ended up putting way more troops into Vietnam than we probably should have. But towards the end, I mean, you could tell he was beaten and broken and he was ready to get out. But it's that mentality. I mean, a lot of people have ideas and you don't really think that they're going to be anything because they don't necessarily fit into your viewpoint or your grasp of things. Like um, if the country's running a certain ideology for a very long time and a person comes up with a similar ideology, but a lot of new changes and new mixes to it. It just doesn't appeal to you. Nothing appeals to you. It's interesting is um, if you know who Alan Dulles is, uh, leader of the CIA, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, leader of the FBI, director of the FBI. Now, Ken Alan Dulles wrote Kennedy's speeches during those debates with Nixon. And here's the biggest question for me, which is N Alan Dulles is Republican. He would have sided with Nixon, but he knew he couldn't push over Nixon. Nixon had that no BS attitude on either both sides of the aisle type deal. And uh, when Alan Dulles writes these speeches for Kennedy, Kennedy wins. Kennedy immediately goes, I want Hoover and I want Alan Dulles on my on my side. Now, eventually that relationship goes sour. He fired Alan Dulles and he tried to get J. Edgar Hoover to retire once he started realizing what was going on. But to me, it was interesting because you can look at it at a viewpoint of like he knew that these people have been directors for 50 years, 40 something years. And that's the best way to get all their staff on board. And to me, that's just – I don't know. Like that type of thinking is like on a whole other level of things. I mean at least at that point, you have main directors and you know, in higher positions of power. I mean besides having them kind of like talking to them be able to get good advice from them in office, you're also able to spend more time focusing on the people as well too. The outcry of like – I mean there's a pressuring the FDA Kennedy was doing to hold themselves liable for damages and products that was going on. I've never even heard of that. I mean, I don't really see a lot of people speaking out about that in policies now, but I mean, to think what he would have did on academic campuses. I mean, I'm a little bit new on what he would have probably done uh, on college campuses and it comes in a big way besides desegregating them and making them open to all races. But I wonder what the, the sexual stuff too, because you have to think if he's having affairs, I mean, is he going to be open to the idea of talking about sex? I would think so, but I obviously don't know. I'm not speculating. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of a number of things while you were talking. I ranted a lot. I'm sorry. Well, well you know, like you were talking. It happens about, with Kennedy. <laughs> well, you were talking about uh, the songs of the of the second half of the 1960s um, and pop culture kind of taking up the anti-war movement. It's also interesting, though, that the early 60s, the JFK years, that was uh, the folk music craze happened during that. And part of that folk music craze was uh, songs that um, uh, embraced the idea of peace and um, decried uh, nuclear weapons and so forth. That's when John Baez and Bob Dylan first uh, became uh, national icons and Peter, Paul and Mary and so forth. So again, it's another case of 
the seeds already being planted. Um, and how Kennedy, Kennedy, from what I have learned about him, was a really complicated kind of guy. He was very much, I, I, I guess, um, adopted the sexual mores of that era that allowed a man more sexual freedom, even outside marriage, than certainly a woman did. But he was also Roman Catholic, and how I'm I'm dumbfounded by that too. Trust me. My, my guess is that he would have just steered clear of uh, of wading into the uh, the arena of sexual politics. But he was a politician, and part of the reason he was a cold warrior. One, I'm sure he believed it personally. I mean, he had fought in World War II. That generation uh, really did have that generation that had lived through World War II and had seen how Hitler had um, uh, taken advantage of people who tried to appease them. That shaped their thinking about communism and dealing with the Soviet bloc and so forth. So that was part of, I'm sure, the motivation for why he embraced um uh, Cold War, he um, was a Cold Warrior early on, but also he recognized that he really needed to adopt that political stance if he was going to be elected in a really competitive race against Nixon. Um, and I'm sure that's also why he tried to make nice with the established leadership of the FBI and the CIA, uh, which then did grow more contentious the longer he stayed in office. But you know, that's what people do. They make these kinds of compromises and they adopt these kinds of positions and then they ship them um, in part so that they can gain political power to begin with, which is not always necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean you have no principles. It's accepting the realities of, of um, being able to accomplish something by gaining office to begin with and then um, adapting to... Uh, the changes that are taking place in the culture, like the civil rights movement uh, becoming more and more prominent and deciding to do what's right and also what's politically possible in that moment. Part of the reason that LBJ was able to get uh, civil rights initiatives passed once he became elected was uh, he, as, as I understand it, he was able to take advantage of the fact that Kennedy had been assassinated and I think LBJ said in one of his first speeches after Kennedy was assassinated, he said, we should pass the civil rights bill as an honor to uh, the late John F. Kennedy. So he consciously took advantage of the public mourning that was happening then. He knew that the political moment was right the way it hadn't been just two or three years earlier. So part of what how Kennedy changes, I think, is him just... Uh, adjusting to political realities, in addition to, I'm sure, well, the political convictions that he really did have. You know, all these changes matter. You can look at something like the Leo Cook letter and say it was just a tempest in a teapot. And if you look at it in isolation, it was. Uh, but if you look at it in a broader context, you can say, yeah, this is a kind of an early shot across the bow. It's leading to the changes in sexual mores, which will feed into the changes in civil rights and into the changes in um, views toward militarism, which will feed into the anti-war movement, 
which will lead into a whole host of other changes. All of these little gestures and all of these little incidents do add up. And I think that's really interesting as well. I'm glad people like yourself are writing books about it and being able to talk about it too. I mean, there's individual voices throughout history that necessarily don't get a movie deal or uh, get a spotlight in history. I've, I've listened to plenty Cold War stories that don't have some big James Bond ending, and I'm like, why do I not know about this? And they don't always need that. And I appreciate you giving me the time to be able to talk about um, both these figures as well too, and also the issue that was going on on campuses back then that you wrote in your book. Um, real quick for everyone out there listening, do you mind rattling off a couple of your links and also where people can find your book as well too? Uh, yeah, the uh, book is called uh, Dangerous Ideas on Campus. Uh, the subtitle is Sex, Academic, uh, uh, Sex, Conspiracy, and Academic Freedom in the Age of JFK. Um, the best place to find the book would be uh, press.illinois.edu. That's the University of Illinois Press, which uh, published it, press.illinois.edu. And if you just type in uh, Dangerous Ideas on Campus, you can find it there. Um, the best link for me would be uh, if you could just go to media.illinois.edu. Uh, that's the College of Media website and click on faculty journalism. You can find me there and there are links to other things that I've written and so forth. And I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.